So I had something happen to me recently that I think many of you could relate to. I got my wireless phone bill and saw there was a charge on there that I didn't recognize. And this wasn't the first time. In fact, it was the third month in a row that this had happened, and each time it meant I had to spend 30 excruciating minutes on the phone with customer service. The idea of doing that again just filled me with dread. So I said, I've had it. I'm going to call them up, get them to remove this charge, and I'm going to cancel my service. How should my wireless company respond? I mean, losing me as a customer is bad for business, right? Should they offer me a discount on my bill? Give me a new phone? Either of these options could make sense if they think that doing so would change my mind and keep me subscribed. But what if doing nothing could be the right answer? This is How I Wrote This, where we go behind the scenes to demystify how great papers came to be. I'm Brett Gordon, professor of marketing at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and co-editor of the Journal of Marketing Research. Today I'm speaking with Ava Escarza, who is the Yakorsky Family Associate Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. She is also a co-founder of the Customer Intelligence Lab at the D-Cubed Institute at HBS, and she is an expert on customer management. We spoke about her sole-authored paper, Retention Futility, Targeting High-Risk Customers Might Be Ineffective, published in JMR in 2018. Historically, many companies tried to prevent customer churn, that is, customers leaving a company, by offering promotions to those who were most at risk of leaving. People like me, who were fed up with being on the phone with customer service. But examining data from two field experiments, Ava shows this isn't necessarily the best strategy. This paper won the Paul Green Award for Best Paper in 2018 and the White Swiner Odell Award in 2023 for making a significant long-term contribution. With that preamble out of the way, let's jump into the interview to find out more. Welcome, Ava. Thank you for joining me on How I Wrote This. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be in the podcast today. And I'm very excited to talk to you, and I hope everyone is excited to listen to you as well. So, Eva, a lot of your research uh, centers on questions such as personalization and targeting, often in the context of managing customer retention, uh, basically predicting who might leave my company and trying to incentivize them to stay. So I want to go back a little bit for some context on the paper that we're talking about, retention futility, and think about, you know, if you were to go back maybe 10 or 20 years, how did most firms approach this kind of problem? Yeah, that's actually, that's a good question because this is exactly what prompted me to write this paper. So based on my observations from the field and also the field of marketing, I mean, and based on observations also for what marketers and researchers were doing, traditionally the, the approach to tackle churn has been mainly about predicting who will be the customers who are most likely to to leave the service, to leave the company soon enough, say within you know the next month, the next depending on the time period, and trying to tackle those customers by encouraging them to, them to stay via some incentive, via promotion, via notification, many times via discount. Uh, so just less, you know, these people are about to leave. Let's give them a discount with the hope that they will stay with us 
Okay, so if I was, let's say, you know, back when cell phones had actual minute caps, <laughs> uh, you know, way back in the day, maybe if I were a customer of T-Mobile and they saw that I hadn't used many minutes the last several months in a row, my usage was going down, then perhaps they would have analyzed data from me and others and said, oh, maybe Brett's going to leave as a customer. He's getting ready to cancel his contract. We should give him a discount next month or something along those lines. Is that sort of the idea? Absolutely. So this happened, actually, I maybe I, I spoke too fast about predicting churn. Most of the approach to churn originally was generally in two ways, either reactive or proactive. So when people, let, let's go to the cell phone example, because I think it's, a, it's an easy one to understand. The reactive way would be when you are a customer of T-Mobile and for some reason you're going to go to a different provider and you call them to cancel. On that very call, their churn management program is about, okay, let's just try to keep bread. He's about to leave us or he's actually leaving us. And generally those type of approaches involve very extensive promotions and they would erode margins in a way that it was kind of very dramatic. Then it came more the from reactive to proactive churn management, which is more about let's try to anticipate who might be the person willing to or more, most likely to churn and preempt that behavior such that we make sure it's not too late. And then in that case, back to your example of T-Mobile, if based on your patterns of behavior, based on lack of activity, or the fact that you call so many times to numbers in another provider, or the fact that you call the customer service so many times, there will be flags that predict that you are most likely to leave the company than other consumers. And in that case, they will probably run a promotion to you, offering you some discount in the next possible billing cycle, some kind of better plan for you, things like that. So that's kind of more that the proactive churn management approaches that uh, that this paper actually is the one investigating. The idea in the in the idea in the field of the the, the idea among marketers was that by being proactive rather than reactive, you actually don't lose those customers who have already decided they are leaving. And the premise was that this approach would save them a lot of money because by being proactive to that, you would actually lose fewer people and it would be cheaper for you to do so. Oh, so that makes sense. It's it's a it's the an ounce I always mess up this quote too. It's an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of <laughs> is pound it? of protection, a pound of medicine. Oh man, I I don't yeah. Well we'll we'll, I, we'll voice it over later on maybe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe. exactly. So that that so that makes that makes sense that you know waiting until the customers complaining enough that they want to cancel it seems like just from maybe an intuitive intuitive standpoint that a you need a fairly substantial promotion to convince them to stay whereas if you sort of can anticipate who's going to become angry enough to actually leave that 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 little that small kind of signal of love to them as a customer uh, might be actually quite helpful so then he entered the paper that we're talking about today because i know that that advocates uh, really a different approach than what was kind of otherwise advocated. Can you tell us what, in a nutshell, what that difference was, is and how did it occur to you to focus on that? Um, yeah, so the, the main difference is that in that paper, what I, what I test is whether this practice, 
the common practice of let's predict somebody's likelihood to churn, somebody's probability to leave the company is a good metric to decide who to target. Let's identify who is willing to churn and therefore I don't have to waste resources on those who are gonna stay. But if you think about it more in another layer of common sense, instead of going after those who are gonna churn, it would make more sense to go after those who will be responsive to whatever you're gonna do to them. So the whole point is identifying their response and how this response changes across customers. And this is something that is not resonating with the way companies tackle churn because they are not looking at how do these people respond to my intervention, but rather they are looking at their baseline probability of churning in the absence of any intervention. In English terms, this is the difference. Is it indeed the case that customers who are most likely to churn are those who are most sensitive to the interventions? That's what I was really testing. And you said how the idea, the idea came up. Uh, in full honesty, the idea was one of these um, idea that comes up in the shower that I was that I don't know this, I, I cannot pin down what exactly company I have been talking to, but I remember like what was in my, stuck in my mind was like, they were talking about, we target the top of the curve. And for them it was like top of the curve. And the curve was the, of the, of the prediction model of the, you know, propensity model or something. And they were talking about the top of the curve. And I remember like thinking, but it doesn't need to be the top of the curve. And then I was in the, yeah, the shower, so, like I have to so say like twice, not once, like over. twice. You were like, like hearing exactly, here, like a know. voiceover, like everybody has voices in the shower, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But it was thinking, no, it doesn't need to be the top of the curve. And, and in fact, this is how actually my original paper then changed the, the title and everything. My very early kind of folder and, and all the codes and the kind of my, my notes about the project was called top off. Because for me, the point was like, it's not that going to the top of this curve has to be the customers who should be targeted because they are not the most sensitive to it. It sounds like you were able to boil down the conventional wisdom in your head into this phrase of the targeting the top of the curve, the top of the curve being those customers most likely to to leave the company at any given point in time. And the idea that, that firms were targeting these customers, thinking that those who were most likely to leave was, were also going to be the most affected by an intervention by the firm. And your your realization or, or uh, uh, in the shower was that it didn't have to be this way, perhaps. But it's really an empirical question, of course. It, it could be true that those who are most likely to leave would also be the most open to a, a promotion, or it could be not true. So that's how that's how it came to you. So then what did you do next? So what I did next is I took a data set that I already had from a different paper. So at that time, I already had a paper, one paper where I had used a field experiment from a company. And actually that field experiment was a retention campaign. And so after that, I was like, wait, I, I should be able to test this question because I can always find out people's propensity to leave. Actually, if we have something in computers, it's churn model. So I could do that easily. And then I could look at whether the intervention had different impact across different ranges of the data. So let's say I could sort people by their 
risk of churning and then see if those groups have a stronger intervention uh, impact of the intervention. So this is kind of how I came up with my actually eventual empirical strategy. But at that point, it wasn't really an empirical strategy for the paper. It was my way to, okay, let me try to, to test this in a way I, I, with what I have on my computer. What happened to those data um, at that particular company, what had shared with us was a little bit of behavioral information of the customers, but it wasn't very rich to be able to predict churn properly, like to have a lot of excess that could predict risk of churning. And of course, I needed that to be rich enough to have this heterogeneity. So then what I did at that time is I reached out to a previous company that had collaborated in the past. And I, I talked to the data person there and I said, hey, I knew this company was running campaigns, very kind of um, A-B test a lot on, on telco. So I, I, I talked to this person and I said, hey, do you have a retention campaign that has certain characteristics? And and they had so so he was very nice on sharing those data with me. So then that, that is started now. The, okay, now I'm going to start collecting the data or getting data that is rich enough to answer that question. A clarification for me: the first data that you had is that still one of the study ones or twos? No, no it never made it. To the, okay, never made it. To the, never no, made it to the paper because so, it was not. I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't figure out the groups of high risk, uh, low risk. So when, when you first. So now a, a real question, a realsy question, as I say, when you first ran that analysis on that that initial kind of convenience data set you had, were you demotivated at all by the results? Did you see the results and think, up, oh, there's nothing to this idea? Or did you quickly realize what the issue was and, and pitch, let you push forward? Yeah, I never thought, oh, this is not an interesting research question or thinking like, I'm never gonna find the answer with just one data set, there was a moment where I thought that I had to maybe to collaborate with someone because I didn't have the data for this project. So, and, and it's, I think it's, it was kind of a, a moment, like I did have a research question. I somehow had a kind of an empirical strategy, so to speak. I had this board where I have this little figures that I draw by hand, which is how I was going to analyze everything and what would be options of what I could find and how I was going to summarize the findings in a way that would answer whether yes or not risk versus lift. So I had the element of the question and the approach, but I did have a data set that I was not going to be able to give me that. So I remember at that point was like, okay, I wanted to pursue this. The option was, let me, let me look at people who might have had this type of you know retention experiments and but then i actually i i, I didn't find I, there was a lot of papers in marketing with field experiments about other problems but it is true that i did not find anyone that had that kind of data which i think in retrospect is it was good for me because i was like okay no let's you know let's go and try find out and also it's good for me i uh, who knows whether this was a good idea or not, but at some level, I, I'm glad that I ended up writing the paper on my own. I, I learned quite a bit about working with myself, I guess. Maybe that slowed me down and maybe there would be other consequences of what I did, but I, I, I think it was good. I actually, I, I am glad that uh, that gave me kind of the push or the notch to, oh no, I'm gonna look for those data myself. And I did. I 
wanted to come back to something you said. You said you drew a, a little figure maybe on the whiteboard or something. What exactly did you draw? So what I draw, I remember, was data and then our, our like a training validation. Because I, I knew, so I, I kind of, until that point, all of my papers had had um, some sort of an, an econometric model where I model some behavior, either probabilistically or more utility maximizing. But the idea is that I have a behavior that I want to model and some parameter in the data is going to give me the answer. So that is how my papers up to that one have been working. But this one, I knew I had, because back then I didn't know anything about policy evaluation of policy learning. I didn't know, I didn't know any of that literature. What I did myself, it was kind of my map of how would I take a data set, I split into training and validation, I would take the training, I would predict risk, I would then predict a logic model with the risk as a parameter of it, and then I would take the insights from it and go to the validation and compare whether indeed the treatment effect was different by groups. And the risk here is the baseline probability of churning for a given right, customer. The risk of churning. Now, what I didn't know back then was how I was going to go and estimate the sensitivity. Uh, that part, I that was totally, but what I had in the board was data split. And then from that split, I had some allocation of who gets the target. And then I was going to the validity test and I was going to group people by high risk, medium risk, low risk. And then I had these little bars that I imagine how the effect of the intervention was in this group, that group. So I, I kind of, it's ridiculous. This is so long ago, but I remember that board. Now what I found out is that this data, I could not, <laughs> I could not even go from the training data. I wouldn't even go to who to target. So then what I did is I, I contacted, as I said, this, this person that I, I had been the data person in a company that I collaborated in the past. And, and it was great. He, he gave me a large enough campaign uh, that had a lot of kind of features. That, what is actually funny, I didn't tell them in advance that this is what I was testing. I guess this is when you didn't do the UAs as, you know, as thoughtful, as thorough as today. So uh, DUAs, did, data use agreements. Yes, that's right. So I didn't, I told them I had an agreement with the data usage agreement was like, I want data on campaign, retention campaigns to see effectiveness of that. That's pretty much it. What I didn't say uh, was that what I wanted to actually do is to test whether their approach of going after high risk customers was optimal or not. I think it wouldn't have changed anything. It's not that they, but anyway, so, but it was funny is what I was asking for this data to really look at whether their approach made sense or was the kind of the best thing they could do. And the answer was not the best thing they could do, but at least they could improve it later. So, so you went out and got, um, fortunately you were able to ask a friend to give you some data and you went and eventually got two different data sets. And why, why did you go with two different data sets? Why not just stop with one? Because actually my original idea was to go with three. <laughs> I guess ambition, I don't know. The thing is, I was trying to make a point that it's obvious once you, of course, you should target people who are more sensitive to that in that sense. But what I was trying to say is not that, that is obvious, that is tautological. 
What I was trying to say is when we go for risk of churning, we are not getting there. And I thought if only you find one data set that says that, people would say like, sure, you find one occasion where this is not the case. So my original goal was to go with three. Uh, why three? I don't know. I mean, N, I don't know. And then I went with two because then I, I got two data sets that had rich enough variation on the excess. And the, what I liked about those different data sets, which is the ones that are showing in the paper now, they are very different kind of campaigns. They are very different verticals. And not only the, the type of customers and the type of campaign, Actually, what happened in that campaign is very different. In one campaign, one campaign was pretty decent. On average, it increased retention a little bit. But the other campaign was still a flop. So the other campaign was actually this company was targeting people at high risk of churning. And what they were doing is they were pushing them out pretty much with those promotions. Okay. Like they were kind of what people in the industry call uh, like uh, waking up the dog that lead. Come on, how is it? Let dogs, let, let sleeping dogs, sleeping dogs lie, lie. So they call it waking up the dogs, right? So what I liked about this N equals two and why I thought it was enough was that it's not that both campaigns were successful. It's not that both campaigns were doing this. So the good news was that even in a successful or a non-successful campaign, right? I can show you the differences between going for risk and going for lift. Lift is what I talk about the sensitivity versus the risk of churning. So, so that's I, when I, I, I got these two data sets and I did kind of my little plan that I had in the board and I could execute that plan. Then it was like, kind of, yes, I got it in a way. I mean, it was not the, it was not close to having the paper yet, but it was kind of good. Like, yes, there, there are differences of whether the high or low risk people are responding to the campaign. But that's exactly the point I want to make. The point I want to make is what is this relationship? So that's why I like it. So you had these two different data sets. You obtained estimates of risk based on propensities of uh, churning on each data set, and then also estimated the lift, the basically the treatment effect of a, of a promotion of a retention campaign across the same set of users and showed that they didn't line up necessarily. Correct. Um, they line up in study one relatively well, but not in study two. It was sort of the opposite direction as you'd kind of otherwise hope in study two. So you you achieved your goal of demonstrating that it, it could work out to target the top of the curve or it could not work out to target the top of the curve. Um, okay, so you had the two data sets. What, what was the progression then? You Because you said you ran some initial analysis, but it wasn't the clearly the final analysis. You must have had kind of, you know, notes and code here and there. How did you make progress to putting together a draft? So as I was conducting this empirical strategy that I had in my board, one thing that I wasn't at peace with was on how I was estimating lift. I was doing that with a logic model in which I was putting in risk and having an interaction effect there. The idea is that I would get a stronger effect of the interaction in areas of the data, what is kind of more like a 50-50 to churn or not, kind of the baseline probability. So I wasn't very happy by using a logic with interactions at that point to estimate the lift. Uh, because I knew, that the, I knew that the parametric form could be, I don't know, could be telling me things that I wasn't, right, exactly. 
so that is at that point I was doing the analysis of these three data sets, but one wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, and I was finding something, but it wasn't that consistent. I was kind of plotting. I remember these curves. And now what happened at that point, uh, what pushed a lot of my progress was I went to see a seminar in, in, a, in the operations department at Columbia. And in that seminar, there was Stefan Wager, who's now a professor at Stanford. He was presenting a paper he has with Susan Athey about causal, what they call the causal forest paper. This is before the GRF package. And that day when he was explaining how to think about heterogeneous treatment effects in a tree-based model, it was kind of when I was like, oh, wow, that's exactly what I need. So once I saw this paper, this presentation, I, I reached out to him. I wanted to use their code. Their code wasn't ready. This is early 2016. But on doing that and doing searches, I did find a package in R called Uplift that actually was doing that with not the statistical guarantees that GRF and all of these new methodologies that came up afterward do, but actually they do the trick. So once I found out this, this package, what I did is I tested it extensively with simulated data that I knew exactly what to happen. So I tested the, the, the package and I saw that the package was actually estimating lift. And then once I had that, I just replicated all of the analysis very fast, like in a matter of two, three months. Like I was kind of like getting familiar with the package, replicating it. And then is when the things started making, like I knew I was going in the right direction. Now I actually, with that greater degree of accuracy, I was happy with how I was predicting churn and how I was predicting lift. So now I was ready to make the point. On the progress side, this is what I told you was kind of the, the very final months until writing up the first draft. Those were non-stop. Once you see that things are working, fantastic. It's like, yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's good. I was just, you know, on my own working on it. The progress that wasn't as easy, I'll admit, is the one very earlier on. So I was working in the paper about, I was looking at my notes today before this, podcast. So I was working, just doing analysis for about 15 months on my own for this paper. This is where the first kind of like, I started with this data code. My first data do file is dated like 15 months before I started writing. There it was hard to make progress because I was working alone on something that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to fulfill it in a way. What was and your I'm, work process? Like. So, yeah, so I'm usually a person who works by promising co-authors things. So I, I self-impose the deadlines. I tell my co-authors at that point, I, I was driving every single project I was involved with, like more like a, still like a very junior in a way. So the way I work always is I, I promise over promise, and then I just push me and then just keep doing it. But at this project, I'm working alone. There is no co-author to promise anything about. So the way I keep progress and I, I do it in all projects, but in this one is kind of particularly funny. I always keep a journal per project and it's, a, it's nothing fancy. It's a Word document where I just have the dates if I, miss, if I meet with my co-authors, but I talk to myself about, I copy paste and results is just a journal where I go like with the date, what I've done, where the files are, what data sets I'm using, and overall what I'm finding. It's almost like a conversation with yourself about exactly. like what you did and what you what you need to do, it sounds like. That's correct. And it's also a way to force me 
to summarize the results for another person, even though the other person is me. So the thing is, I work, I have this kind of journal project for, for any project. Uh, now people use Notion and many other things, but you know, I've done it all my life. So many, many times I use it as a way to go back to my co-author and say, no, 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 we agreed on this, we did that. It was a way to kind of like, uh, on the one hand, show them progress that I, what I'm doing, but on the other hand, also to keep me on track to not to digress to the things. No, we agreed on doing this, this is what I'm doing. The funny, what I said funny about this project is that I, I don't have any other co-author to tell this to. So for me, it was kind of a, really a personal, this one became more of a personal journal. You almost, I mean, I didn't say, hey, I'm a Taurus and I feel sad today, but it was more like, uh, yeah, like telling myself the progress. And I, I think it helps to, to me to, to see that. Also, it helps when you, after all of these months of doing a lot of analysis, you start writing. I go back to this. Is, this is helpful to, to see like a, I want to make sure I didn't lose track of what I wanted to do earlier on. And if I lost track, why so? So I think it keeps me more grounded on what is the whole objective of what I'm doing here. And, and it had another huge benefit, which is, you know, years later, when you do a podcast about a paper, you have the <laughs> exactly. whole history right there. Exactly. Oof. When you ask me like, Oof. what happened to the papers? And, ah, let me look exactly. at the journal. Yeah. Exactly. I think, I think that something like, I think I've done versions of that with, different papers, but not all my papers. And I can definitely say that when I do something like that well and maintain a record, it's it's clearly very, very helpful um, because there's so many things you, you realize, uh, just ideas that come to you or interpretations that come to you kind of in the moment when you're looking at results and they can disappear, you know, the next day. So I think, I think journals of this sort are very, very helpful. Yeah, when I, when I do in this journal, which is, I think it was always helpful, this one and other projects, every so often I do write an abstract that I wish is what the paper will say. It's not, I don't put results. If it's an empirical paper, I don't put a 20% or a 2%, right? But I do write kind of the abstract to keep me more like uh, aligned with the goal. I, I think that's an excellent, that's actually something we uh, we tell our PhD students. It's sort of like if you, it's sort of like, drafting a pitch of the paper, if you can condense the whole motivation question, how I do this and results into, you know, six, seven, eight sentences, that should all hang together as an argument, you know, as a story effectively. And if it doesn't hang together as a story when you haven't really done anything or when you've done very little, then there's no hope that you should be really be working, putting so much more effort into this. So I think that That's is right. a really great practice to have. It can save you a lot of wasted time in the future. Yeah, many times I, I find myself like uh, you get lost in some analysis and then you in the next and the next and the next. And, and the reason why I write the abstract myself is to make sure that what I am doing helps me answer that question in a rigorous way. So I think we're now in like early 2016 or thereabouts, you finally everything had come together. You found this uh, uplift library and we're working on it kind of nonstop for a few months. A draft of the paper came together. How did you decide when you were ready to submit it somewhere? Hmm. Um, Maybe I, you were just tired of working I, on it. <laughs> I was going to say, I guess I remember I gave the paper to two people to read. Especially it's a solo author paper. It's like really like, oh my God, right? To people I trust and like to to senior, more senior than me, obviously people, and and the the response was was positive. Then w there was no anything really blocking 
the paper from these two. Um, so I went for it. And so then tell us what happened in the review process. Uh, what were kind of what issues did you anticipate coming up? Were there any surprise issues? There were not very new issues that I things that I didn't anticipate because I'm um, I'm very optimistic always. So I every every time I submit something, I celebrate that day because I think it's amazing what I just did, uh, and then I don't know what's gonna come back, right? So uh, when I submitted this paper, I was I mean, I was hoping for the message to just get through easily, like, hey, it makes sense. This is a churn problem. This is really what the industry is doing. And that part was actually as expected in the sense that uh, the review team embraced the question right away. Like, uh, yeah, this is this is an important question. That was so there was no convincing to be done on on why this this should be kind of a substantive issue like that was that was good. What I remember the from the review process. So the paper already, as I said, the paper already had the two data sets and it had kind of um, a validation approach that I came up with, like, I mean, came up with, it was kind of a ad, ad hoc bootstrap. You're like, I'm going to do this strain validation multiple times. And I wasn't sure if people were going to be okay with that. I was like, uh, I don't know. I wasn't, I was used to use run Bayesian models, show these convergent plots, evaluate the convergence validate out of sample the prediction and that means that your model works and therefore we can listen to the betas that was kind of my past behavior this paper the way i was validating my point was slightly different because then i was i'm gonna predict something based on these predictions i'm gonna set a policy and i'm gonna go to a new data set and evaluate this policy by looking at what happened by groups of people so what I was anticipating was I wasn't sure if this kind of empirical approach was going to have any con any concerns from the review team. What the review process gave me was at first they and they they were asking a lot about first of all but wait, what variables come up significant what variables matter what variables don't matter they were actually bringing me reality to hey you have been treating all of this as a black box which is fine you can answer with a black box but there is more on your data that you are not celebrating so the review process on the very first round they went for two things in general one is like get us give us more give us more from the data you have some rich data that explains heterogeneity that data that predicts churn, what data sources are the ones that are the key differences and things like that. So they kind of helped me in reaching the, the empirics of the paper in a way. And there was a strong push as well for making it broader. You have this context. What does it say about not just retention, but lifetime value? So I see this looks like this might be, you might be referring to the second to last section of the paper. Correct. That is all new from, that's, that's, Totally thanks to the, the review process. And those plots with the different variables, those are also thanks to the reviewers. Uh, uh, figure six, I think. Oh, uh, good. Yes. Uh, it's very much like, uh, hey, give us more in a good way, in a very, very good way. I think like every other paper, but in this case also it's true, is like also the review process, of course, uh, was the driver for many parts of the appendix, obviously. So everybody wants to, no, but it's, it's good. Actually, I, I'll admit that I, in the process, I became more at peace with the approach I was taking. To the extent that reviewers can ask you questions that even aren't 
directly answerable by the methods that you currently are considering. It helps kind of expand your thinking a little bit. And I always view it as you're getting a sort of a draw from a distribution of hopefully relevant readers. Uh, not, you know, uh, they at least have some motivation to give you hopefully thoughtful feedback, but just the point that it forces you to think maybe a little bit differently about how you're conveying what you're doing. I think that's that's super important. How did this change how you worked on projects in general going forward? I became very picky about which companies I engage with after one meeting to actually get data. So more and more picky about quickly in the very first conversation, get a sense of how they actually have the data, whether they interact with customers, whether they actually run any kind of experimentation. So I don't, I cannot disentangle how much is H of that type of this paper, but definitely I am more critical earlier on about whether the company that I collaborate with is going to have the right data to answer my question. If you could go back in time to late 2015, give yourself some advice, what, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, good question. Okay. This is what I didn't do well. I did not present this at all until I was super happy with my analysis when I had those data sets, etc. So the very, very first time I presented this, when I was looking at my files, the very first presentation is dated in December 2015, which is about already like more than a year and a half working on it, or roughly. And that presentation was a brown bag at Columbia. And that was great. That was, that was, that was fantastic because that set me to start writing and start thinking about making a paper out of this. I totally should have presented this before that. I always thought I didn't have enough to present it, and but I did have enough. I just, and it is good to be very thorough and, and do a lot of analysis and so on, but I, I had not been smart with my time, I believe, before that. So the first time I presented to other people, that was great to, to actually push to making it a reality. I did not present it. I did not even submitted to an abstract or anything because I was always very insecure about, do I have something here yet? And I think that was too, too long. I think that that's a common problem that a lot of people have. You're always very, you're very worried about getting feedback on something that especially you yourself are the only one who's seen. And I think we all know that early feedback can have the highest impact. So we know that. And yet we often ignore our kind of our own advice of seeking early feedback, Correct. even though we know it's actually the most potentially impactful. So you, you work with a lot of companies, as you said, and you often are very much able to convince them to get you, give you data for these kinds of projects. If you think about, you know, more junior people in the field, PhD students, maybe a brand new faculty, what advice would you have for them in terms of working with companies or trying to work with companies? I think the biggest mistakes I've made in that in that front are to engage with companies in multiple meetings that are not going anywhere, just with the hope that I will get their data. I did not value my time that well, I think. So one advice I would be to, when you talk to the company, put ourselves in the, I th so I have two mindsets when I talk to companies. 
One is the mindset that I learned something about what they're doing. It's always good to be in touch and to understand what they're doing. And we also think we think it helps in the classroom, whatever. But I think it's much better to be on the mindset of the transactional mindset. Like what I want to get from here is, is a data set that can answer a research question that is going to be published in one of the journals I want to target. And I my mistake has been over the years, if I don't, I mean, that one, something I would, ha I would, now I would talk to my past Eva, I would try to tell her to do differently, would be to be more transactional, to really be in mind that I'm talking to this to get clean data that can answer my question. What does it mean that I would have prepared better for those meetings? I would have prepared better about what is exactly the kind of data that I want, what is exactly the research question that I want. So it's not only on them that were dragging this discussion, it was on me that I was not preparing myself to the best possible moment with the goal of getting a data set from them. The second advice is more, this one I, in my case, it worked all the time. It's like, you have to have a hook for them, right? They have to see that there is something in here for them. Absolutely. The same as you, you have to have a transaction mindset, they have a transaction mindset. So in my case, this was generally easy because when you work, you tell them you work on customer retention, no one is going to tell you they don't care about customer retention. So in that sense, I think in my case, the topic was easy to get this kind of win-win situation. My advice is to, is to sit a few times with a senior person doing it and then just copy. I remember going to the first company or two with a few senior colleagues. And what I was doing there, I was only learning how this other person was dealing with it. And then I just did that. And now I, if a student is going to talk to a company, they tell me about it, I'm, I'm just show up there or even a junior faculty and just kind of run a little bit the call to, for them to see like how to kind of steer the conversation so the company knows there might be something on the other end. That sounds like great advice. Eva, thank you so much for talking to us today about your paper. Thank you. That was Eva Escarza from HBS talking about her paper, Retention Futility, Targeting High-Risk Customers Might Be Ineffective, published in JMR in 2018. This episode was produced by me, Brett Gordon, and if you like the way we sound and the music, you should thank our producer, Andrew Merriweather. We'll have another episode of How I Wrote This for you next month. To listen, subscribe to the JMR newsletter, email us at hiwtpod at gmail.com if you don't know how, or follow us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and talk to you next month.